I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from Delight Pavan in a version which is found in Margaret Board's lute book, as are the other pieces you can listen to at the end of this podcast. Miss Board's book is a collection of lute music begun in the second decade of the 17th century, and this is part of a series of podcasts supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Spem in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University on that collection of music. George Torres, professor in music at Lafayette College, has been thinking about correspondences between lute instruction manuals and manuals on civility, comportment, and courteousness in 16th and 17th century England and France. By Skype from his office in eastern Pennsylvania, Jorge, as we call him, spoke with Deanne Williams, professor in English at York and Killam Research Fellow, and me about how Margaret Board's lute lessons were also decorum lessons, and how that contrasts with the indecorous lute lesson in The Taming of the Shrew. Now, Jorge, you've been thinking about... Uh, uh, Mary Burwell or Burrell. Are we going to say Burrell? It is Burrell. Yeah, it looks like Burwell. Her lute yes, it tutor. Does. Yeah. Uh, her, uh, you tell us about her lute tutor and um, when it's from and who she was and things like that. Sure. So um, this source is from around the between 1660 and 1672, and it was um, a source that was uh, written for the Burrell family. Uh, Miss Mary Burrell, uh, who was born in 1654 uh, and married at around 1672, uh, and possibly it was made for her mother, uh, Elizabeth Burrell, because that's the, um, the, um, the information that's on the, um, the text itself with, the, with her signature on it. And she's from uh, 1613 to around 1678. Anyway, so it was written out by uh, Mary Burrell. Uh, from a copy lent to her by her teacher, and he uh, went ahead and copied the musical examples in a in a in a, in a very very lovely hand uh, into the text. So she copied the, the the instructions from his exemplar, and then uh, he went ahead and put in the musical examples for her. So this book has been known for a while now, ever since uh, widely known, at least since Thurston Dart's. Um, uh, Galpin Society Journal article from around 1958, I believe, where um, he transcribed, let's say, into more modernized English, uh, almost the entire contents of the uh, of the lute tutor. Uh, I should say and there's, that there's a lot of there's a lot of writing in this book. I've seen bits of it, and it's mostly writing with a few bits of music put in. Right, it looks that way, but there's an awful lot of music in there as well too. I'm not sure just how many examples, but I think there are over a hundred uh, wow. musical examples in there, maybe even 150, quite a few. Anyway, the instructions and the examples in the text reflect the height of French Baroque lute music. So this would have been the the, the school of lute players that was most famously uh, headed by uh, Enemont and Denis Gautier, the two Gautiers. And, of course, uh, their cohort, which included uh, Charles Mouton, Jacques Callot, and many other um, uh, well-known uh, lutenists. Mm-hmm. So, and they're very influential on the harpsichordists as well, um, when we hear about French suites and things like that. 
that's yes uh, yes the 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 french baroque uh, lute school if you will was influential on on lots of uh, lots of instrumental repertories not just the harpsichord but certainly the the, the most documented is the influence that the uh, le luthiste had on uh, the uh, clavecinists um, in the 17th century and we see that in, in the transcriptions that the harpsichord players made of, of lute music mm-hmm. in an effort to emulate uh, their style um, it was also uh, very influential in the other very important 17th century century instrumental repertoire uh, the 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 viol repertoire the pièce de viol uh, in France. Uh, they also uh, were very much uh, charmed by the lute, and some of the authors actually talk about uh, attacking the viol in such a way to imitate the lute. So, um, all the way back to Mersan, I mean, and probably before, um, the, the lute was considered the, the, the most noble of all the instruments. Mm-hmm. And you can certainly see that if uh, people want to Google uh, Charles Mouton, Charles Mouton, uh, there's a fabulous picture of him looking most noble looking oh, yes. queen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's a terrific picture. Yeah. That, that is a fabulous portrait. It's, it, that portrait of Mouton is really great at showing body comportment, uh, a pleasing countenance, um, sort of the gestures of the hands are very um, um, attractive, and, and especially when we compare them with other sorts of uh, uh, portraits uh, in their day of, for example, the famous hurdy-gurdy, the blind hurdy-gurdy musician by um, De La Tour. So those... those um, those two portraits, for example, show a completely different style of body comportment. One of them being kind of a street musician with the legs akimbo and the mouth wide open and, and playing on a hurdy-gurdy with a little canine next to him. Uh, and the other one being more of a studio portrait uh, of Mouton with the lute very beautifully placed with the hands in very nice positions and very modest sort of body comportment, a gentle smile on his face to show that he is not at all cramped in his performance, but actually enjoying himself in a pleasing sort of way. Mm-hmm. And the fr- the lute for a century uh, before the lute in England, the lute in England had been uh, Frenchified. Even the very first lute method is, I think, is Le Roi in uh, around fifteen seventy. By sixteen ten, uh, the lute variety of lute lessons published by Robert Dowland has a translation of uh, Bessard, Jean Baptiste Bessard's uh, lute method in the beginning. And he's prescribing the new thumb outside proto baroque style, and there are some French pieces in there by Robert Ballard and um, Jean Parachon. And I think also in this period, a lot of the court dancing masters were already French, and I think that fits in with comportment because um, when you're getting dance lessons, you're mo- learning how to move and stand gracefully. So consequently. That's all part of the... You talk about Chambouton somewhat later. But by 1610, the French are teaching you how to move across a room in England. And there's um, some French... There's a French layer in the back of uh, Margaret Board's loot book, uh, which is in another hand and appears to be somewhat later, 1630s, 1640s. But I, I found when I was playing some of the pieces, particularly the mask dances... I found it was easier to get the articulation that I wanted to hear using this new French Baroque technique is what I found anyway. So I think even from 1610 up until uh, Mary Burrell's lute teacher is giving her her method, the lute's already on its way to Frenchification. There's French lutenists at court from the 1620s, but um, I think Jacques Gautier is in England 
working for uh, Villiers from uh-huh. 1517 or something like that. So these are probably the new men with the new lutes that John Dowland compla- complains about in his letter to the reader in uh, Pilgrim's Solace. So uh, Mary Burrell's lute tutor, uh, is her lute teacher a Frenchman actually or what's, uh, where's he from? Well, it's difficult to know with any certainty exactly who it was, but there's an awful lot of evidence that points to uh, the authorship uh, of John Rogers, it's that John Rogers was the author of the uh, of the Lute Tutor, uh, even as far back as uh, Thurston Dart's research in 1958, when he suggested that it might have been Rogers based on some circumstantial evidence, and through Robert Spencer's research with the, the Burl Lute Tutor, we were starting to feel pretty comfortable that John Rogers was the author. We also have some some um, some references, for example, in uh, Thomas Salmon's uh, essay to the advancement of music, uh, where he has a piece in there by Rogers. And he also goes on to say uh, that he's chosen this tuning uh, because, quote, as tis that which the most excellent lutenist Mr. Rogers ordinarily teaches in London to his scholars, end quote. And so Spencer was also able to see that there were pieces in the lute tutor, the Burl lute tutor, that looked an awful lot like the ones in the example that Sam gives, and also that uh, that, that particular um, quote is very similar, not identical, to um, a quote uh, in the Burl lute tutor where he sets up one of the examples for uh, for the Burl, uh, for, for Miss Mary Burl's instructions for the lute. So it looks like uh, the, the evidence points to Mr. John Rogers. Um, as uh, Susanna Perwich referred to him, the rare lutenist of our nation, she referred to him um, as such. Tell us, Jorge, about some thoughts you've been having about extra musical or tangential to musical ways of holding the instrument and ways of sitting that links to the comportment manuals and how to be a good uh, courtly person in uh, the second half of the 17th century. Certainly. Um, the, um, the need for um, the right and proper uh, body comportment uh, was, was demonstrated and commented on in, in, uh, in several manuals of the period. Um, um, these these uh, courtesy books or civility manuals uh, uh, became increasingly popular um, from uh, Castiglione on. Uh, Castiglione uh, was, uh, that text was translated into lots of different languages, including French. But in the 17th century, we have um, another text specifically uh, on, on civilité, uh, civility by Antoine de Cortin, um, entitled uh, Nouveau Traité de la Civilité, uh, the new treatise on civility. And so this is an interesting text because it, it, it is a little more closely associated to the French court. Uh, but even some of most of what we see in Castiglione in his comments about music and other things as well uh, um, put an awful lot of emphasis on the notion of, of modesty uh, and to avoid exaggeration and those sorts of things uh, when 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 in front of others. I mean, we understand also that this sort of uh, effort at social differentiation uh, was very important at this time, as it seems like most of the ideals 
of comportment and behavior came from the court, and in this case, the French court, and so that everything sort of trickled down, uh, and anyone who aspired to, to, to that life or that sort of behavior would, would take these things seriously and uh, try their best to emulate those at court. And so modesty was a very, very important part of it, and so it was important that, um, that such a thing was, uh, was known. Even as early as uh, Castiglione in the, in the first half of the uh, 16th century, we see directions for modesty. For example, I think there's one spot in there where he would say something like, uh, he would have the courtier behave uh, in a modest way, uh, not like many who no sooner come anywhere uh, than without waiting to be urged, they set about doing what they know and often what they do not know. So it seems as if they had only come for the purpose of showing themselves <laughs> and had that for their chief profession. So that was one. And then Cortin has a similar kind of call for modesty when he says something like, quote, if one has a faculty for singing, playing upon the music or an instrument or making verses, he must not do anything in company to make it understood. But if it be discovered that he be desired to show it in any meeting by a person for whom he bears any respect. He is to excuse himself as modestly as he can. But if his friend persists, it will argue good breeding to sing, play, or repeat his verses without scruple or hesitation. And that's the end of that quote. Mm -hmm. There's a staged, um, uh, I, I think there's a story about uh, Elizabeth I. Is, um, she just happens to be playing the virginals and the French ambassador and others are secretly let in and they watch her do this little thing, except it's completely staged. So she doesn't really know that everybody's listening. It's the height of modesty. Uh, you know, you're inviting the, uh, to the great and the good to come and watch you play. But really, oh, I didn't even know you were there. That's that sort of thing. Well, it's very similar here as well, too, and also that the actions that one performs on the lute somehow correspond to this notion of, uh, of control and modesty and self-respect. So not just, you know, the, the avoiding, you know, the, the forthcoming behavior of playing uh, beyond, uh, you know, one's welcome, but also just the <laughs> idea that there should be like a, a look and a, and a comportment and sort of like a, a visual or a, a sight to the sound that is also um, attractive. Uh, and, and, and steeped in these notions of, um, of body comportment. And just the good posture, uh, going back to um, Chambreton's picture, good posture and no great uh, tension in the hands or extreme gestures is uh, highly... You need to do that to be a good player. You can't be tense or making extreme motions. No, that's right. I think the you know the rock face that we see many uh, guitarists would be eschewed, <laughs> eschewed by the seventeenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth century comportment manuals. To be sure, R right? That's correct. Um, so, for example, the appearance of the player um, is is mentioned in both like uh, Burl and the the the, um, the collection of pieces by Charles Mouton that he published at the end of the 17th century, uh, that, that it's important to maintain a pleasant look while playing, and you certainly, sees that, you certainly see that in the, uh, in the portrait of Mouton. But Mouton warns against it by saying, uh, about, specifically about the, the, the hands, that they should, uh, quote, not appear at all cramped, that playing mm -hmm. easily or fluently is one of the most important things uh, for the lute's beauty. So it's really important to look like you're not having a tough time with the whole business and that it looks somehow that it's, it's very fluent and almost came naturally to you. 
Burrow goes on to say uh, uh, that uh, one should keep a fair and pleasing countenance and cast your eyes where occasion requireth. So this is very much uh, sort of the, the notion of, 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 of looking uh, very pleasant while you're playing as well. Sort of like those pianists on Lawrence Welk who, who, who seem to be quite virtuosic <laughs> in their performance, but don't spend one minute looking at their fingers. They're just smiling and looking at the camera. And, I, and I've always thought that was sort of a similar sort of thing. You know, you, you, you don't want to look like you're struggling or anything like that. You want to look like it's just the easiest thing in the world. Easier said than done, may I uh, add, at this yes. point. <laughs> yeah. And also that one should keep their hands clean, too, because, you know, nothing worse than having, uh, what is it, uh, uh, dirt under your fingernails or something, you know, something uh, very unattractive. I think Mary, uh, the Burl Lute Suter describes it as black velvet under your fingers. Yes, 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 yes. Make sure that, yes, 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 you, you avoid anything uh, anything unattractive looking. So, But they, they definitely felt that, that there, was a, there was a visual that accompanied it. And Burl says later that it's important that a lutenist engage the audience by, quote, ravishing the soul by the ear and the eyes by the swiftness and neatness of all the fingers. So... It was not just a listening experience, but also this uh, this visual as well too. And 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 it's 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 fortunate for us that Burl spent so much time in this treatise remarking on how important those those visuals are. And also the choice of company. Tell us about that. I mean, that's a very important. It's emphasized in the Luke Tutor as well. Right, 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 and venue as well. So it was important not to um, not to play in the wrong place or for the wrong people. Um, and so in Burl, for example, um, there's one where um, um, the author states that the lute is a closet instrument that will suffer the company of but a few hearers, and such as have a delicate ear, for the pearls are not to be cast before the swine. So absolutely, yeah, just exactly what you're saying. And then, of course, you know, to, to, to make, make popular use of the instrument was also, also seen as something that uh, one should avoid. For example, uh, Burl later says, it's a disgrace for the lute to play country dances, songs or florants of violins, as likewise to play tricks with one's lute, to play behind one's, neck, behind one's back, etc. Um, <laughs> so I guess the, you know, Hendrix wasn't the first, but it's important... <laughs> It's important to remember that that uh, that these sorts of things must have been going on, otherwise the uh, the the author would not have bothered to say them. So I just I just laugh at the idea that if Roberts or whoever the author of this text is is saying don't play behind your back on the loop, there must have been an awful lot of lutenists running around <laughs> trying to play behind their back. And he also says this is a great one of my favorite lines. Uh, quote, the lute is a noble instrument, not made for debaucheries, ranting, or playing in the streets to give serenades to Signora Isabella. It's a grave and serious music for modest and sober persons, and for the cabinet rather than for a public place. This instrument requires silence and a serious attention. So I think those those give us an idea that the the, the lute was was to be treated the performance on the lute was to, to be treated very carefully and and, and not not uh, not taken lightly and and, uh, and and certainly not abused. In fact, there's a funny funny line about uh, about not playing in taverns. Uh, speaking of abuses, uh, where the the uh, the author states, to play in taverns that never happened, but to a man in Paris who was paid for his abuse by some learned of the lute that made cinnamon beaten in breaking the lute upon his head. Uh, well, we'll come back to more lute, lutes being broken on uh, people's heads. So this implies that 
the ideal is um, very uh, courtly and uh, closeted, which contrasts against um, in Henry VIII um, by Shakespeare and Fletcher towards the end, end of Shakespeare's life. One of the characters complains about the f- the sly horsons have got a speeding trick to lay down the ladies. A French song and a fiddle has no fellow. And so that leads me to talk to Diane and ask her about uh, the most famous loot lesson in literature from uh, Taming of the Shrew and how it also contrasts with uh, what Jorge's been describing. Tell us about uh, the Taming of the Shrew and uh, the, the loot lesson in there. Right. Well, it was really interesting to hear Jorge talking about uh, these issues of um, civility, comportment, um, the word modesty. All of these <laughs> key words are uh, very much at stake in uh, The Taming of the Shrew, which sets up this dichotomy between the two sisters. We have, on the one hand, Bianca, who is described as a young, modest girl who takes delight in music, instruments, and poetry. Um, Someone who is uh, defined in the play by her gentle smile and her modest comportment, which is massively admired by, by her suitors. And then by contrast, her sister Katerina, who um, is described consistently in kind of um, uh, sonic uh, metaphors. She's described as thunder. She's described as being cursed as loud as thunder. She's described as hell, a din. So she is actually, so we can think of them as in fact, two different kinds of instruments. We can think of Bianca as a quiet, lute, right? As, as, as Lear says about Cordelia, her voice was ever soft, gentle, and low, an excellent thing in woman. So there's this interesting parallel between the uh, ideals of femininity um, and the actual lived experience of listening to, uh, to good lute music, right? Tuneful, harmonious, quiet, um, but also this idea of being modest or, or, um, or even closeted up in, in private. And by contrast, Katerina uh, rejects these expectations that are placed on her. And so she is loud um, where her sister is soft and and quiet. And one of the suitors, uh, in order to get close to her, pretends to be a lute master. Tell us about that scene and for those who haven't seen it lately. Right. So there are two. Uh, there are two suitors. There's there's Lucentio who dresses up as uh, Cambio, who's going to teach her about poetry, um, and then there's Hortensio, uh, who poses as Litio, the the lute instructor from Mantua. This may be uh, this may be a, a a key detail, and it may be. That and on, at the beginning of the 16th century, in particular uh, Mantua with Isabella is the the epicenter of lute playing right in the beginning of the uh, 16th century. I think Alberta Reap comes from there, and uh, so it's really the center of lute playing at, at the beginning of the sentence, or 16th century, anyway. Right, and I guess it's important at this point too to kind of highlight that um, that this play was written in the early 1590s. So this <laughs> is a good uh, what two generations before mm-hmm. the Burrow Lute book, but there are still so many play- points of contact exactly, in terms yeah, of the, yeah. the symbolism. I think it's just a question of the style evolving, um, but the but the the symbolism of the lute um, and its identification with with ideal femininity, I think, is is very key, and also this idea that it is something 
that can be learned, right? That it is it, that you can learn to be a woman, you can learn to be a gentlewoman in the same way that you can learn how to play a lute, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the induction of the Taming of the Shrew starts with a page, a boy, who is going to pose as a, a gentlewoman to trick Christopher Sly. And, uh, and the idea is that this boy character can, can adequately perform the, idea, the ideals of femininity. Of course, this is key to Shakespeare's stage too, where boys played mm -hmm. the female roles. So we have a certain allegory of Shakespeare's stage going on in The Taming of the Shrew as well. But you were asking about that bad loot lesson. Yeah, it doesn't go well. <laughs> doesn't go well. So what happens is uh, in the play, uh, Hortensio, as Litio, enters with this, with this broken head. Now, you guys play the mm -hmm. loot. I, I would like to know, can, can you actually break your head on a loot? I, I, I think, you I, I think the shard, if you, if you were hits over the head, the problem is that the shards would, it would there would be definitely be spy, uh, pointy shards that would uh, perhaps not break, but certainly slash up your head a bit uh, on, the <laughs> on the shards of uh, a loot belly that would be left over. Uh, what is the exact words? Through the loot my pate made way, which uh, is even more amusing in original pronunciation, pate made way sort of thing. Kate's uh, playing the lute lesson turned into um, a, a broken instrument, um, a shouting um, mm -hmm. Fretting. It's uh, it's quite the it's quite the, the opposite of what Horky's been descri describing exactly. as the uh, of what uh, lifting up a lute over over your head and smashing it over somebody else's head is definitely the opposite of the compor uh, comportment of Cretan and uh, the Burl lute tutor and indeed uh, any lute tutor from the 16th or 17th century has. Well, it's interesting, this notion of like um, being able to learn how to do these things, which is very true. I mean, there's so many of these lesson books that survive that were created specifically for patrons who wanted to learn how to play the lute. Nevertheless, I believe they had, they had made an effort to make it seem like it was something that couldn't be learned. Um, and that I think even goes back to, to Castiglione as well too that uh, it, sh it should have a certain nonchalance or naturalness to it. Uh, what I think you refer to Castiglione as a sprezzatura, um, that should conceal any sort of um, effort at having learned it, that it should just seem to have come naturally and you know, God-given and, and reserved for the noble. So it's interesting that we, you know, it's, it's just like etiquette in, in any generation, probably. You learn how to do things to differentiate yourself from those who don't know how to do things, like dance a gavotte or play the lute or know how to dance properly. It's, it's important to make those sorts of social distinctions, but at the same time, it shouldn't look like um, there should be any sort of effort to learn how to, how to do that sort of thing. That is, that the, the artifice should somehow seem effortless. And that's really, I think, the beginnings. In 1600 and 1610, you're moving from the Renaissance into the Baroque. And so the, so the, the nonchalance of John Donne's um, uh, uh, prosody, so uh, let man soul be a sphere, and in this, the intelligence that moves devotion is. You wouldn't know that was two lines of verse unless you saw it on the page. He's not like uh, in the mid-16th century, da-dum, 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 da-dum. It's not, or indeed in the 18th century, where the, where the prosody is much more regular. John Dowland, or John Dunn, I should say, is uh, like, oh yeah, I'm, here's a couple of lines of, oh, 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 with those poetry, I just speak like that normally. 
what, this old thing? I only put this on when exactly. I don't care and, what and, I look and, like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Aren't there uh, fabulous uh, fashion plates who we could go to the nice parts of downtown and see doing that just today? Right, right. And I think you can extend that also to, to, to the other arts that were popular at the time, like dance, you know, just to, mm -hmm. to show that, that the, any ease and poise of the, of the, of the dancer is something that, uh, that just comes naturally or it sure appears to be that way and not something that uh, needed to be taught and maybe had to be practiced a whole bunch <laughs> in order to make it look so poised and easy. But I just want to say also that Bianca also has very little interest in being a music student. So both of them, in their different ways, uh, she, very, she very quietly sort of satirizes Hortensio's uh, lute uh, instruction and, uh, and rejects it as, as, as really as roundly as, uh, as, as Kate rejects it. Well, I suggested in one of the other episodes that the, um, you can, I think you can see in the board lute book's repertoire, starts out with these uh, single note pieces, single note duets, and has this really standard repertoire. Indeed, to go with this talking that we're doing now, we're going to hear Delight, Pavan, and Galliard, a piece that's in one of the very earliest uh, manuscripts, the Willoughby Lute book. It's got completely different divisions, but you've got to imagine a, a young woman what doesn't want to be playing this turgid old stuff from 30 years ago. So I think there might be a tension between John, what John Dowland wants her to play and what, what she wants to play. I, I would love to know, um, Jorge, when, when um, in The Taming of the Shrew, uh, when Hortensio reports that, that one of the things Kate does after she breaks the instrument over his head is she insults him and she calls him a rascal, a fiddler, a twangling jack, and 20 such vile terms. I would love to know if you have any thoughts on the, these insults. Early in the century, the violin or fiddlers were considered to be lackeys, you know, the French word lackey. You know, so uh, <laughs> we see that in the, in the, uh, in the early uh, history uh, of the ballet de cour. There's some, some references to the fiddlers as being you know, less, less than you know, uh, the more noble uh, instrumentalists. So with regard to the comment about the twangling jack, it's possible that the early guitar, which was seen as oh. in some ways a strummed instrument, was thought of as being less refined and uh, less exalted than the lute. We have complaints uh, from from um, from the Germans uh, some genera a generation later about the French. The French loved the guitar, and they even transferred one of the guitar's techniques to the lute. It was uh, usually in sarabands. It was a sort of down uh, downstroke upstroke technique called tir et rebattre. So that was a strumming that was done, barred from the guitar, on the lute. And the Germans hated it. Or at least Ernest Gottlieb Baron in his treatise on the lute said um, <laughs> that they're always scratching, scratching around. They find it fashionable to scratch the strings. Uh, and he's referring to the strumming, which would have used the back of the nail, which was also considered by many uh, players of the time to be sort of an impure way to attack the strings with a nail. So and not only are they using the nail, they're using the back of it to hit a bunch of strings at once, presumably uh, indiscriminately as, as far as they're concerned. So I wonder if the, the twangling would come from the association with um, you know, Spanish guitar strumming, which in the early days of the instrument's history was associated with some very, very lewd music like the, uh, like the Chacon and the Saraban, 
Uh, by the time we get to the late 17th century, these dances have been appropriated by, by court musicians uh, in a stylized way. They, they cease to have a ballroom function at that point. But they're, 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 they're exemplars from the early, early part of the uh, century and even the late part of the 16th century. Uh, those pieces were, were, were found in treatises to be strummed in, in the Spanish style. And they were also associated with these very uh, lewd and, and lascivious types of pastimes, like uh, uh, dancing to the to, to the to the sarabande of the chacon. So I wonder if maybe the association with a lower social class might not might not be what's 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 uh, implied here. And bringing in the sound of a, of, a, of an instrument that in some places and sometimes was considered to be less uh, less exalted. And down there with the lackeys who played the violins or the fiddles. Exactly. Right, so those are the vile terms, right? It's vile to call a lute player a fiddler or a, a, a twangling jack, a guitar player. Yeah, in the English in the English court, the um, certainly the lute was uh, was for the bedchamber of the king. The violin and vile players were allowed in the privy chamber, and then the wind players were allowed in the presence chamber. So you can see that real right. class, you know, that real class. Uh, uh, divi- uh, division between yeah. the different right. groups of groups of instrumentalists. And of course, I think what we have to keep in mind too at this moment is that Hortensio is posing as a lute teacher. Yeah, He's not exactly. actually a lute teacher. Yeah. So this is what he thinks a lute teacher would say. This mm-hmm. is his idea of the performance of being a lute teacher. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Sort of like a masquerade. Yeah. So he's not demonstrating any mastery yeah, of anything. He's, just, yeah. he's demonstrating only he wants access to the chambers of the girls of this wealthy merchant. Um, he's not actually got any music to teach. <laughs> right. So it's just sort of like the uh, Robert Preston in The Music Man. <laughs> bit, of a, bit of a charlatan trying to get some other advantage. Yes. There we are. And, and how many musicians can claim never, never to have attempted that? <laughs> So I think we can uh, uh, sum up by saying that when Margaret Board and Mary Burrell are getting their lute lessons as young women, they're also getting comportment lessons and learning how to be in the right company, holding their person in the right way, as they would have been getting from their French, French dancing master as well. And I think we've learned also that Knowing that your lute lessons are comportment lessons is another thing that it's good to know. The Taming of the Shrew, uh, and indeed this passage from Henry VIII, knowing that lute lessons are supposed to be comportment lessons and grace lessons, that the disgraceful actions in Taming, uh, in, the, in Catherine, in the Taming of the Shrew, and uh, these French, uh, sly French horses with their uh, French dances. These are even more ridiculous actions if we know that uh, Burl and Board are getting their loot lessons to manage the complete opposite of those things. Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely key to the, to the comedy of The Taming of the Shrew mm-hmm. that you come aware of, of the idea of the loot um, and the ideals that it represents so that you can see how Kate completely rejects them. Now let's hear The Delight Pavan and Delight Galliard by John Johnson though the decorated repeats in this very late version are likely by someone else. And the anonymous ballad tune, I Cannot Keep My Wife at Home, all from Margaret Board's Loot Book. (laughs) 